Welcome back to the Signal the Noise podcast. I'm Pro Sound Web. I'm Michael Lawrence. I'm here with Chris Leonard. And today is, uh, we have two Chris's in the house. We have Chris Leonard and we have Chris Mitchell. Chris Mitchell, who many of you know as a frequent Live Sound International Pro Sound Web contributor and front house engineer for the popular prog rock band Umphreys McGee. Chris Mitchell, really great to have you here, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So where are you? where are you physically joining us from right now? Uh, as, as most people in our industry, I'm currently back at home, uh, enjoying the rare uh, air in my living room. Uh, just got <laughs> off of uh, what was tour uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, we're waiting to see what the virus lets us do next. We're all uh, we're all waiting. We were just discussing before we started to roll here if we need an alternate uh, naming convention, uh, if we should do uh, Leonard and Mitchell instead of Chris and Chris, but um, I'm told rumor of another uh, Chris Leonard coming on our show in the future. So, I mean, anything that we implement now will just be a prototype and we're going to have to reschedule it all later. Yeah, so you can't, we can't just do Leonard and Leonard. That doesn't work. So <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Um, Chris Mitchell, you just had a recent article um, that we put up on personal web and I believe is in the March issue of Live Sound International called The Days of Rosewood and Iron, Restoring and Enhancing an Early 80s Mixer. And uh, I just thought it was such a treat to read um, you sort of your journey on on this project, man. And we don't, um, it's way off the kind of the beaten path for stuff that, that is usually on my radar. So it was really cool to to read how you took this old, uh, it was it was a Yamaha M1516, correct? And correct. you uh, you put uh, direct out... Uh, I mean, I'll let you. I'll let you say what you did to it because I'm not going to get it right. So, so tell us about the project, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. Um, as we all know, uh, gear ages out. We've all seen large stacks of you know mixers, rack gear, various pieces of copper at, at uh, the sound companies we visit. And I, I thought it was a shame that these things were not getting used. Um, they were good enough for the day. Um, so you know what is keeping them from being useful now? And um, as most of us know, you have to have a bunch of features to have a, a live mixing console nowadays. Uh, these do not have a lot of features, but they, they have good components um, at their core. Um, so not wanting to you know, just let them set and rot, uh, I started with a mixer that I had inherited, uh, which was a PM2000, the 8-bus version of the M1516. Um, and kind of doing some... Uh, upgrades and repairs on that, I found out that uh, when Yamaha built this series of consoles, it was uh, kind of a no expenses spared kind of affair. Um, very good transformers, uh, high voltage power supplies. Um, they copied um, some of the best manufacturers gear on the market. I say copy because engineers borrow from other engineers and they just happen to borrow from other good engineering companies. Um, the PM2000 was uh, probably the big flagship that Yamaha had uh, in the early 80s. All the big concerts had them. Um, they showed up in all the broadcast trucks. Um, Epcot even had a pair down at Disney. Uh, but to make a long story longer, basically, uh, I, I got into these consoles and figured out that a lot of the 
basic components, the preamp, the EQ, the summing bus, uh, would be really useful for recording because a lot of us live engineers do recording on the side. So, you know, we, we know what sounds good. We know what we like to use. And for the cost of uh, a single API mic pre that you would put in a rack, I was able to get a 24-channel console that was 24 copies of that same mic preamp. Um, one thing led to another, and I, I wanted to to refine it and make that uh, that console the best it could be. And I did a lot of experiments. I, I figured out, uh, you know, uh, as capacitors age, they start to sound bad. Uh, they all sound different when you have five or six hundred capacitors in a console. Um, the ones that get voltage through them a lot will sound different than the ones that don't get voltage through them a lot. So I started getting into how to rebuild analog gear to get it a back to where it was when it was new. Um, capacitors, power supplies, things like that. And then B, uh, could you take it even further and make these things more useful in a recording environment uh, than they were when they were new live mixing consoles? So by copying other people's work uh, in both studios and live sound, I was able to figure out how to add uh, direct outs to a console that did not have direct outs. Um, I was uh, able to use uh, transformers and... um, discrete operational amplifiers like API used, um, which came stock in the, the PM2000, the M1516. Uh, those components made really good recordings because it's a, a high voltage preamp going through a high quality transformer. You get that little bit of saturation. You get that little bit of compression when you hit it hard. Uh, these are qualities that um, if you were to go into, you know, Blackbird Studio in Nashville, um, these same type components are are current and even though they're vintage they're they're in high demand and companies are making copies of them so you know they're obviously good things a little bit uh, further down the road i started coming up with uh, the opportunity to tour around and notice that there's a lot of these consoles sitting around so i would buy them when i was out on tour um at one time i had six or seven of them sitting in the back room (laughs) waiting to be uh upgraded modded pieced and part together and it's just been a, a, a fun little experiment to try to recycle things that um, had an intrinsic value 20 or 30 years ago um, and I'm, I'm trying to get an, an, another life out of them uh, while they're still around I was doing a little bit of research on the the idea of you know what happens when these capacitors get old and what I found is that when you're dealing with electrolytics in particular they literally dry up and uh, it changes the the time constant of them, and so you you know if it's if it's implemented in something like an EQ, you're literally retuning you know the EQ uh, center frequency. If it's something like a coupling capacitor, you could be rolling off low frequencies, and um, so you know that was kind of one of the things that maybe we don't think about you know when it comes to maintaining analog electronics. It's just you know literally the age is going to affect how this device sounds, and I just thought that was a pretty cool uh little kind of scientific tidbit you know that that um kind of really speaks to what you're talking about there yeah on top of that um manufacturing techniques have changed over the years um when capacitors were first made especially for audio uses back in the uh, 1930s 40s and 50s um a lot of nasty chemicals were used um things that you know would eat through metal and corrode steel and uh, luckily we got away from those things but um 
the if you take apart a capacitor, which is one of the three basic components of electronics, um, the electrolytic ones, you're, you're, you're right, they're made with a, a moist component, it's a paste. And no matter how well you seal it over time, uh, that paste is going to dry out and uh, they change tone. Uh, sometimes they quit working at all. Uh, they always definitely high pass. Um, it, the characteristic is as they dry up, the, the capacitance value uh, raises. Excuse me. Capacitance value lower, lowers, the high pass raises. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if you imagine putting a 80, 100, 250 hertz high pass in all of your circuits randomly, <laughs> that's how i normally make shows <laughs> and yeah. kyle turns side everybody kyle Ladies is uh, and gentlemen. <laughs> he has returned from uh from his dinner date with his father and he's here uh kyle does that, does that make him does that mean he was that with our grandfather is that how that works <laughs> that is how that works chris mitchell i couldn't miss it for the world my man how are you great kyle good to hear you again good to hear you too bro Congrats on your uh, new thing. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, um, you know trials and tribulations. I'm I, I I'm glad uh, Jeff Holly said it on the one of our last episodes. He was like, the music business is playing the flute. The music business is uh, doing the paperwork. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still doing the thing, man. Awesome. Sweet. So Kyle, Chris was just telling us about his project that um, we covered in the latest uh, issue of Live Sound where he, he rebuilt and sort of modded out a um, an old Yamaha console and made a pretty cool uh, recording console out of it. So we were just getting into the, the nitty gritty of that. I think, I think Chris, the, the thing that I thought was really interesting about that is the, the, the way you added the direct outs. You found an extra pin hanging out somewhere. <laughs> just like oh, I'm using God. that. <laughs> that was uh, an... an- an engineering happiness bomb that it was just, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, it's three in the morning, you're banging your head about, Oh, I'm going to have to add a connector to this thing. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sure none of you guys have ever been on one side of these consoles, but basically you pull the channel strip out and instead of having like a connector that it mounts into and you have a, a slide socket type connection, instead it's just a couple of cables that come up and, uh, small white plastic connectors like, you know, go on the back of hard drives or whatever, little four pin or six pin thingies. Um, when Yamaha built this thing, um, the connectors came in even numbered sets. So it's either a four channel connector or a six channel connector, et cetera, et cetera. And they had one that they used for insert that used ground, send and return, leaving the fourth one unused. Um, they even left a pin inside the plastic connector, so I didn't have to find the pin. Uh, used a, 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 a tiny piece of metal, pulled the, the pin out, soldered a wire to it, stuck it back in, and was able to take my direct out signal through a, a connector that they had installed originally. And uh, it, it looked uh, mainly factory. Uh, it's definitely serviceable, um, and it was a, a nice, well-thought-out type design that i did not think out at all <laughs> it was so what, very what, serendipitous what kind of um have you been able to do any like recording with it oh i've got uh i, I don't do recording anymore because i can't stand musicians yes <laughs> yes 
That's I what mean, I'm if talking it wasn't about. For the people involved, I would love this gig. <laughs> um, I, I would prefer to deal with engineers, so uh, I usually just resell them to people. Um, I do have one that belongs to a, uh, a guy that does some producing for Beck. So um, some of the stuff has been on Beck's latest couple of albums. Is that oh, the wow. keyboard player? Cool. Drummer. Oh, drummer. When I did Beck a long time ago, the keyboard player was uh, rebuilding a bunch of old synths and stuff like that. That guy was pretty brilliant, man. And what I wanted to add, too, is one of my first house consoles was a PM2K, man. So I did get in there a little bit to do some low impact maintenance, blow stuff out, make sure solders weren't cold, check pot, stuff like that. It's a pretty epic desk, man. Like lifting that thing was something special. I know this is a smaller version, but yeah, man, moving a PM2K around was no joke. Well, so uh, I learned... Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just going to say, um, not only were PM2Ks all over the place, um, but... The, the two that I just recently picked up, uh, one of them came out of uh, Trump Tower, uh, and another came out of Epcot Center. No okay. way. <laughs> you would not believe the, the industries and uh, corporations that bought these things back in the day, and luckily just threw them in a closet in a warehouse. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, they infiltrated everywhere. Uh, at the time, uh, it was Yamaha and Midas, uh, Harrison, Harrison, maybe they were mainly broadcast. Yeah, true. Gamble. <laughs> yeah, if you could get him to build you one. Yeah, true. <laughs> All right, Chris, I gotta. I, you'll know the answer to this because we were talking about this the other day, and um, I have a vague memory of a discussion with someone about a mixing console that was foldable, and I don't remember the details, but I feel like you would know. It, it was designed to fold in half like a laptop. Do you remember that? Yes. I can't <laughs> for Shoko or for Claire, but it was built I thought for it was Claire, man. That's I okay. Yeah, I, don't I wonder feel if too it was bad. Claire. But I think it was Claire because the show the show console from Shoko couldn't fold, but it did look a lot like a lighting desk. Gotcha. Then it must have been Claire. Um yeah, I've I've seen articles about it uh, not being an, an a Lidditz person. I can't go any further into that because you know I've only seen what pops up online but i have seen that foldable one um it would be great if one of those would pop up ironically the uh the digital show console um that shoko had that floated around for a while that harrison built um one of those recently got uh sold on ebay in parts Ooh, that was a gym find for somebody Yes. I wonder. I wonder if it came with the 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 controller, the Prism controller, or whatever. Because I know they they kind of migrated that over to just system processing at some point. Yeah, this one's know. just broken up into eight channel strips. That would you know what I love about up. this man? It's so cool because there's sort of this. There was like the golden age, I call it, of audio engineering. You know, back when it was like, well, I want a parametric EQ, and so the the best solution was to build one. You know, and and now we're sort of in the disposable tech era where um, you can just go to Guitar Center and and get something in a box and plug it in and it goes. And and as great as that is, you know, to have access to the gear for people, I think a lot of us have sort of lost 
maybe an appreciation or that really deep knowledge of what's under the hood and how this thing works and and how you know there's like just wonderful elegance in the way that the circuitry is designed and spreading out the big schematic on the table and going oh wow you know this is really neat the way they accomplished this and and so you know, part of your work you know on this to me is is some part of the reason I, I'm so fascinated with it is because it's sort of kind of kind of harking back to the the golden age of that where you I mean you were literally like I'm going to uh retune the bandwidth on the uh the channeling cues. I want them to be wider. And so you you know you went in and you you just changed them. Um and I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I think, you know, in terms of having the context for the younger folks in the field, I think that's something that that could deserve a little more attention. So I, I learned uh, how not to clean a PM thirty five hundred, which is a <laughs> obviously the, the next uh, stage in the console um, with beer. So my, yeah, no. So, <laughs> so like my first summer at Maryland Sound, uh, you know, relatively new to the industry, um, and uh, you know, one of the jobs in the warehouse is to clean consoles, and so. And this 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 PM thirty five hundred we happened to have was pretty grimy and nasty, and I was like, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll clean this thing, and and so there was this um, this liquid that we used to use to uh, clean a bunch of things because it would work really well, and I'm like, all right, it will it will work really well in this, and so I pull off like the knobs off like you know a handful of the uh, channels, and uh, I get a little plastic bin, and I I pour some of this liquid in there, and and I and I, and I put the um, the knobs in there. Uh, I'm like, all right, I'll let them soak for a little bit, and we'll, we'll go out for lunch. And I come back, and I look at the knobs, and all the color is gone, and they are <laughs> and they and they are melting. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Um, so apparently, acetone melts plastic. Oh, and I did gosh, not man. know this. <laughs> and so I quickly had to like clean them off and we had like three or four channels of our 3500 3, at that point that was now colorless um and somewhat <laughs> deformed and uh so I learned early on uh yes uh boys and girls do not use acetone to clean plastic. So oh that was a gosh, valuable lesson. There. <laughs> yep. You you have that. <laughs> so on, on on that sixteen channel, Chris, are those the same long throw faders that were on the PM two K? Uh, no, it's the same design. Uh, the PM two thousand had uh, one hundred and twenty millimeter faders, and these are one hundred millimeter faders. Uh, the PM two thousand had uh, dual steel slides, and then a PC board in the back. And the fifteen sixteen is just uh, a single a single steel slide, uh, but. They're still both based around the the Penny and Giles fader that everybody used at the time. They just made their own instead of buying that one. I love those 120s, man. That was the one thing I do remember those, the long throw big ones. Man, those oh, yeah. things were awesome. And the other thing is I really learned how to EQ selectively. Um, have you guys talked about the EQ yet or did I jump in a little bit too late? The, the You're right on schedule, basically but... select. Yeah, explain that one. <laughs> so, so basically, you you it, it's like a parametric EQ, but you have like four different uh, bandwidths or frequencies you can choose from, and then your your booster cut, and that's about it, right? With your um, yep. parametric uh, selector or, switch switches between uh, individual filter circuits. So, for your high mids, you'll have five filter circuits and a switch to switch between them. That switches the frequency. And then a stacked um, gain pot on top of that for plus or minus 15 dB. But you're right. Um, you have 
five selections for low shelf, five for low mid, five for high mid, and a single for the high shelf. Um, and hopefully what you need to boost or cut falls where those <laughs> frequencies are. That that works so cool from you because I remember when I came out and saw you mix one night and you were doing your your trial, you were you're testing yourself, and that's when you were basically taking all your EQs out of the desk, all your dynamics out of the desk, and you were just trying to run flat and do your thing. This yeah. is totally right up your alley, man, because even the gains on those old Yamahas are selector switches. Um they go, I don't know, I don't remember offhand what the dB increment was of gain, but one, it was at the bottom of the strip, and you only had five different, well, no, it was more on the gain, but um, it, you you had to be very selective about what you're doing. And I, I think as a young engineer, when I was working at that venue at the 2K, it kind of honed my skill. Like I, if I didn't hit the frequency that I wanted, I did have to go move a microphone. Um, if I didn't get the gain that I wanted, my faders didn't sit where I wanted them to. And I really had to pay attention to my, um, how everything got put together at the end of gaining everything. Um, so this, this, that desk for you, bro, I think is right up your alley. I mean, I don't know you super well, but, uh, I can understand why you grabbed that one to redo. Yeah. It, same thing. It's, uh, it's just the right number of limitations, but the paths that can be chosen all result in good things. <laughs> so cool. That's great. That's great. You know, and Chris, I've done a little bit of dabbling in kind of trying to understand how a lot of these analog circuits were designed. And, you know, I know that a lot of the consoles in the in the 80s and 90s, there were the analog desks were using variations on on Peter Baxendall's tone control. Um, and his, his circuit was like sort of a big deal because um, he was kind of designing in a way to do independent variation of the bass and, and the treble controls without switching and a way to sort of negate the tolerance problems with with the pots at the time and so i'm sort of wondering you know at what point those techniques started to you know, replace the 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 switch selection uh controls you know it's kind of just interesting to see that evolution um i don't have a, a great insight on who chose what and when on those. But from the manufacturer that I've seen from taking apart Yamahas and Gambles and Allen and Heath's and Midas's and a few Harrison's and Hills, um, it seems that Yamaha had resources that nobody else had and made decisions that obviously were not discussed with the accounting department. <laughs> you How look expensive inside was it, you think? Uh, okay, so here's one small example. Um, I don't know what a PM2000 cost new, but you've got 32 channels, four bands of EQ per channel. Each of those EQ assembly, each of those EQ knob assemblies was machined from brass. So there's a concentric shaft going through two concentric rings that go down to a pot that's held in place. The pot was made by Alps. The switch is a custom PC board that they made that has uh, wafer ridges around the edge. I mean, except for, well, not even the knob is the same. They custom made the knob. Everything in that assembly was custom made for that PM2000. And if you've ever been into a machine shop... 
the amount of work to take to come up with one of these would take a, a machinist, you know, half an hour. And when you think of the hundreds of, well, at least tens of thousands that were produced to, to go in all these consoles, they obviously made some decisions to support the engineering that weren't supported by the possibility of making the money back on the back end. So with that said, Yamaha did things, I think, a notch or two above some of the other manufacturers because they had much deeper pockets to do it with. Um, to benefit from that, we were able to get some of the things like um, sweepable frequencies on a parametric. Um, they were able to put the money into what initially was um, the PM1000 and that EQ circuit. As a side note, uh, an analog EQ circuit is a filter circuit. A filter circuit is made up of an inductor, a capacitor, and a resistor, depending on whether it's high shelf, peaking, or low shelf. One of those things could be left out. But basically, those three components make a filter. With the switches, you were switching between three different components. So on 250 hertz, it used this resistor, this capacitor, and this inductor. When you moved up to 400 hertz, it chose three different components. So they solved that problem in the PM2000 and the PM1000 with these switches. Between the 1000 and the 2000, they got away from using actual inductors and capacitors in the circuit and started using op amps to do the job of the, the inductor and the capacitor. That particular type of circuit is called a gyrator. In the PM2000, the gyrator merely substituted for the inductor you were still switching between sets of op amps but you weren't actually doing a, a frequency sweep when the pm 1800 and pm 3000 came out that's when you got the sweepable frequency on your your parametric eq and you can kind of see between the 1000 2000 and 3000 those circuits develop and grow and you kind of see the uh the engineering behind them say well this is great this sounds awesome but we want to find the frequency in between the two we don't want to put 10 switches in there so let's figure out how to make it sweep and you, you can in my mind i can see all the engineers sitting around and solving this problem and and the little bits that went into each step along the way it's really cool that is really cool it's, it's really fascinating kind of you know what what story is told by these uh by these schematics uh and it's something that i wish i Something that I wish I had more exposure to, and I also think you know it, that's sort of a bygone era in a way because um, it's much much easier to find schematics for the consoles made in the seventies and eighties than it is to find schematics for for a current desk. And, and you know now we're into the age of digital everything, where if it you know if it breaks, you just have to replace the board. You know <laughs> you can't you can't go in and swap out a gyrator anymore. So um, it's sort of a it's, it's sort of a you know pleasant era that I think has mostly passed us by. I equate it to working on cars with carburetors. Well, yeah, for sure. Yep. So you have something on your LinkedIn that I've always wanted to know about, and what better place to tell everybody about it? <laughs> um, you were the audio guy for Old Crow Medicine Show. And oh, yes, yes. And and from two, in two thousand four, front house monitors for two thousand seven, and in your your thing after that says it's the toughest eleven channels of your life. <laughs> um. Yeah. There was a I, sigh. I had, 
I had, I had a rush of emotions just came through me, and then I, I quashed the urge and stayed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> it was a heck of a time. Uh, when I got the job with Old Crow Medicine Show, I was, I'm pretty sure, their first crew person. Definitely their first sound guy. Um, they kind of had a tour manager, but they didn't pay him. So um, I was the first guy that got paid. Um, yeah, it was really tough. When I was out with those guys, uh, Wagon Wheel was just hitting. We were in a van and trailer. Um, it was console du jour. Um, they were kind of hanging around with uh, David Rawlings and Gillian Welch. And if you've ever met Dave, he's... He's a guy that likes to do things his way. So they went along with that and figured out they should do it their way. And their way was uh, microphones and wedges, no matter what the stage volume became. And on that tour, you know, Wagon Wheel, the, the hit song they had was was really strong among the, uh, the college age crowd. So we were doing 500 to 1500 seat venues, um, not carrying any gear, not, not even vocal mics, just, you know, whatever I walked into every day. And then we had to get six wedge mixes up on whatever they had in the house. And then when the crowd came in, you know, all those screaming kids and their PBR ball caps and their boyfriends, it was, uh, it was definitely the 11 hardest channels of my life. They all did something different. Every time I turned around, it was, you know, this one's feeding back. This one's non-existent. This one's clipping. And then two seconds later, <laughs> they would swap. So how many people on that thing did you run into? Obviously, that was the beginning. Well, it wasn't the beginning of their heyday, but um, they were followed by every huge country musician ever known. Like, I, I think everybody was a fan of those guys, like from yeah. Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn, Ricky Skaggs, like they they were 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 there redeeming moments like you'd just be sitting there and all of a sudden one of these people would walk up and you're like holy shit it's merle haggard <laughs> um as the tour creeped on yeah in in the early part of it um where we were playing there just weren't you know any large venues or quote you know famous people unquote that that would be around to do that um after about a year or so, it was happening. You know, we would show up at a uh, a festival, and uh, or that one time we played Bonnaroo. Uh, I bumped into a, a bunch of really cool people then, but the really nice ones were when we played like the Ryman or uh, War Memorial downtown Nashville, and to see the old folks come out the end, then and you know want want to catch whatever this this new hotness is that that's happening. Um. It was interesting to see who was showing up and um, you know who was setting stage right every night. Yeah, that had to be insane because there was. It, I mean, who who came out that you'll never forget? Like, who did you get to walk by or sit sit in and have to mix just because they wanted to play with them that you'll never forget? Um, gosh, probably Doc Watson was the biggest one. Um, yeah. Doc Watson kind of discovered them um, on the streets of Boone, North Carolina, when they were busking. Uh, they were all living on one guy's couch and uh, literally, you know, a hat out on the sidewalk trying to make money. 
and the guy who started Merle Fest, the festival, just happens to be walking by on the street. Picked him up, gave him a gig. They played um, Merle Fest, the festival, the following spring. Um, and every time that we were in the area, he would come out and, if not sit in, at least you know show up and kind of support the guys that he got into the business. And uh, Doc was a, a huge figure in the bluegrass scene and, and a really great guy to hang around with. Um, John Prine came out to a couple shows. Oh, and, cool. Uh, the stories that man throws out. We, were, it was John Prine and Steve Martin, and uh, we what? were sitting backstage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sitting backstage at one of the early Bonnaroo's uh, in a tent, and it was just story, 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 and I was just soaking it all up, wishing I had a recorder. Yeah, man, that that's see, and that's why I kind of wanted to bring up the toughest eleven channels of your life, but then follow it up with something that you'll never forget, like that that's insane i think doc watson has like a a statue in north carolina somewhere and that was one of those things when i was out on the road i i wanted to go see that thing like i wanted to find that thing for myself i've I've, i haven't done it as of yet but old old crow muddison show like that's pretty cool man uh mad respect for that you've you how was the grand Ole opry in ryman was that great um, the first few times I went, um, I, I couldn't even see it. Um, you know, it was load in sound check show head down the entire time trying to, you know, keep the things that were going crazy from going crazy. Uh, the next, next couple times around, uh, was really nice. Uh, I had some time to relax and soak in some stories. Um, trying to go through the ones that I can say and, and not you know, hurt <laughs> It's so funny to me to hear you talk about like this full, com- what I call full combat mixing, you know, um, because it's such a contrast to what you're working on now with, with Unfreeze McGee. Like, I mean, you've got those guys so dialed in that, I mean, you, you, you very, you know, it's, it's, it's so consistent now and you've, you've managed to, you know, get control over so many of the variables. Um, and so, I mean, that must've been quite a journey to kind of look back on that and just go like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, to see how far, um, you know, the workflow has evolved for you in terms of, uh, you know, the consistency in the mix and stuff like that. Yeah. Funny you should throw out full combat audio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) once you get that adrenaline rush, you can't get away from it. Um, still, you know, I've, I've got, like you say, Umphrey's dialed in, carrying the console, same gig for nine years. Uh, I should just leave well enough alone, but... No, um, he I, doesn't. I don't. <laughs> uh, I still love side gigs where I don't know what I'm walking into. Um, a couple years ago, I went off and did uh, monitors at Merle Fest. It's, a, it, it's actually the closest festival venue to my house, so it's real easy to go to. Um, but the sound company that does it, um, SE systems out of Greensboro, North Carolina, I've done uh, tons of work with them. And, uh, <clears throat> I just happened to have the weekend off that Merle Fest was happening a couple years ago. Cliff called me up, asked if I was available. I said, sure. Um, after I committed, I found out it was monitors main stage, Uh-oh. Uh, which <laughs> not a huge deal, but, uh, if I don't know if you've ever been to Merle Fest, but they, they have a very quick turnover. Uh, main stage is usually 20 minutes uh, from act to act. That includes off on soundcheck go. And uh, as it turns out, I ended up being on a, uh, a Digico SD10. Great console, uh, especially for scenes and stuff like that. 
And it was, you know, 12 bands a day uh, doing everything except for the last two headliners. And you don't know what you're going to get until you, know, you get the input list 20 minutes before the band shows up. And I love it. It's uh, it's an adrenaline rush. You, you're right on the edge of your seat. You, you, you're either making it by your preparation and skills or you're not making it by your preparation and skills. Um, and it really reinforces, you know, what I think are my skills. Uh, do I really know how to control frequencies coming out of a wedge, you know, when I only do it once a year? You know, do, do the numbers work? Is the engineering real? Uh, can I depend on uh, the, the things that I have, you know, put in my toolbox to get through? And uh, so far, yes. I mean, isn't that I, – I, as much as I am – you know, I do not consider myself a modern engineer and I don't consider myself, you know, a good modern engineer, but, um, I, I definitely, um, you know, I try to take the odd monitor gig once in a while because it, it's like you, oh, for all the reasons you mentioned, like, yeah, it's really good to keep that sharp and to go out there and to make yourself do that. And to, cause it's a whole different ball game, you know, than being out in front of house or being a system tech. And, and I think it's something that's important as much as I don't enjoy it to keep, um, to keep that working because it really does fire your brain off in a different way. And I think it's, you know, it's a really important part of my, my engineering tool set to be able to manage those situations, you know? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Um, let's see. I think, um, you had that other article, um, that you wrote that I know that Leonard here wanted to, <laughs> wanted to talk about Chris, well, what, no, it, uh, what, which article yeah. are you talking about? You know, it's uh, told the name of the article. We'll drop we'll drop links to both the articles in the uh, show notes. But uh, it's called "Improving Emotional Co- uh, Connectivity: Wielding Our Skills in Support of the Art of Music." Um, you know, and it's funny because um, recently I've been in the process of of thinking about another project um, and thinking about the core of that project, and uh, and it really resonated with me uh, with what you wrote here. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to read a little verbatim from it and then we can dive into it just because I think it's just so well written. Um, you know, you said uh, music is an emotional conductor. Recent studies in neuroscience are finally beginning to uncover profound connections in the human brain between music and empathy. Um, you know, we find ourselves in a unique position of helping create fundamental emotional connections between creators and fans. Our day job is the peak of their experience. Um, and, uh, you know, the most important thing we could do is step away from, from the desk and listen, listen to the heart of a fan, their ears, uh, and the ears of an engineer, listen and focus on the music style techniques, all those things, right. Optimize what we do for the musical experience and how that is being, uh, translated. Um, you know, we're not just here to turn knobs and get paid, uh, um, though it's, you know, uh, we're here to facilitate joy, instigate rage, illuminate hearts, break heal, you know, breaking and healing and encourage revolution, all these things. Right. So it goes back to like, why do we do what we do? Right. And, um, and as I think about just live sound in general, right. Like it's the, the emotion that we capture, uh, that captures us at home, when we're listening to an album, you know, it's, we're, we're creatures that like to share these experiences with people. And so when we get to be a part of that medium that translates what the artist has poured themselves into to then resonate with a a collective body of people, uh, there's nothing greater than that. I think we all all of us know that. And um, I think it, it takes, um, it takes some reminding sometimes of like, 
you know, uh, we can spend the hours and hours and hours we want of, of focusing on all this science and all this math. But at the end of the day, if we're not moving people, we're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. And like Pooch, Pooch really kind of drilled in all of this and, and talking about even to the effect of like, you know, if you haven't had a moment when you're behind the console and, and you weren't crying, <laughs> like you, you haven't experienced, <laughs> you haven't experienced this yet. Right. And, um, you know, you, you go on to kind of talk about how, you know, at a classical ballet show, you're not going to have the same low end as an EDM show. And if you go to a rock show, you're not going to have this, or you, you go to a pop show, you need to hear the vocals that you're so under, Understanding the environment that you're in um, and what the how that needs to translate is very very important. Um, and so I just yeah, it was more of just kind of appreciation. But you you know you talked about like knowing um, knowing the skills that you have and what you need to do. Uh, and at its core, you know if if you can't look around and see the audience that um, and see what it is that that emotionally draws them to it, you're probably going to miss it. Yep. <laughs> well i think that's you know to, to me it's the whole idea of like is all of these amazing gadgets we have and we have cool plugins and we have cool i mean chris you have a pretty nice looking outboard rack you know nice rack man yeah. uh <laughs> but, but all of that you know it has to be in support of what is the end goal here we are providing an experience for the audience you know and and i think as soon as you lose sight of that you know all of the gadgets all the technology you're you're kind of going down the wrong path Exactly. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, I really didn't get into and st- until I started doing gigs that I didn't think I would enjoy. Um, during one of the downturns in our industry back in 2008, um, I found myself mixing in-house audio for an NBA team. Um, I don't have anything against NBA or sports or, or stuff like that. It's just you know, never got into it, never went to an NBA game till I worked one or since. And uh, <laughs> I, it was just one of those situations. I could not imagine how am I going to get into this and enjoy it enough to do a good job. Um, mm-hmm. But after, you know, enough time there, you have to figure out how you're going to enjoy it or you're not going to have mm-hmm. a good time. So I was getting into the mindset of, okay, if I am that person over there in 105E, what is the music and the volume of the announcer and the way these cues come in and out? How is that affecting me, even though, even though I don't know what, what's going on? So mm-hmm. I was trying to get into you know, other people's experiences and how I could make that better because really that's all I had to go for when you're mixing an NBA game. You're not mixing for personal satisfaction. You have a, a, a director on an intercom in one ear. Um, you have the lead tech ops person on the radio in your other ear. And then the console in front of you with other things you have to queue up and listen to. So there, there's no creative mixing going on. It's it's utility mixing and that's it. It's, you know, hit the channel, hit the volume, and that's everything else will work itself out. Uh, but in between those, you can find little things that, that will make the, the the crowd happy. You know, the little bass mm-hmm. boost here, the the volume fade in as opposed to slam on. You know, just the, the tiny little things. And then I was able to take those little things and apply them to the stuff that I really did enjoy. And uh, lubricating that that emotional conductor between you know what's happening with the performer and what's happening with the the audience member 
if I can make that happen in a way where they don't notice that I'm there, you know, either one of them, either if I'm, you know, mixing for the performer or mixing for the audience member, if I can make that happen and, and disappear from the equation, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. And all those things roll up into making that happen. Absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, actually, there's a, there's a quote from a book called uh, Blue Like Jazz, and it says, sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself, as if uh, they are showing you the way. Um, and mm. um, same thing. So, like, I, I, I do some a sporting event each year. Um, it's a sport called squash, and I do the U.S. Open. And, um, and it's, you know, and so I'm kind of like, you know, unfortunately a, a dj for it right and so i'm picking music <laughs> you know um i'm picking music for the you know for the, the in between the matches and the games and i'm picking the stingers that kind of go and like like it is my responsibility to carry the energy in that room you know at least in between the games and matches right and i really thrive on being able to carry that vibe and carry that mood and create an experience you know um same thing for like walking music from a corporate show it's like you know it's not just okay i'm gonna get hit you know shuffle on my ipad no like i'm selectively picking songs to build to a moment you know it goes back to um i forget um uh, your buddy from train uh jason uh you know like he was you know he selectively picks the walk-in music to build anticipation to the moment oh of, man of, you know it's, like cr- creating yeah, that get environment fired up yeah exactly it's brilliant you know? yep exactly um you know, and then like I, I think about the the flip side of this is like it, you, you know, on one hand you, you can also go okay, the experience and emotion that people uh, receive at a show so often doesn't depend on um, uh, how well we do our jobs, and and I know that sounds awful and the wrong way to look at, it, but I'm I'm saying like for instance, um, like there you know there was an experience uh, that I had you know I went to an Ozfest right with some friends, um, and it was I went to the side stage before the main stage, and non point was the last uh, not not non point um, uh, who does let the bodies hit the floor um, disturbed. Uh, Johnny Pool. Pool. <laughs> Johnny Pool. Johnny Pool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, some band. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, no, no. It, it, uh, it's important. It was. Um, it was like it, it just started torrential downpouring, and like they closed out with like the bodies hit the floor. All these circle pits start going right, and like, but it, it was a combination of like all that emotion, all that thing going became a really cool experience. Um, and so sometimes I think we lose sight that like as long as we're able to in some way at least translate that medium, at least move that along to maybe mm-hmm. not be so hard on ourselves sometimes on all these little nuances is, is if you can look around and everybody is just there and and in the moment or whatever it's just it's just the part of the cool part of our job that just gives us that satisfaction it's one of the reasons like i don't like doing recording stuff because it's like i don't know how you capture and get that emotion that one chance to get it right that type of thing when you're in that um you know recording mode versus being you know alive you got that one chance to get it right yeah, live. You, you get that feedback. It's it's immediate. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things that you know that I really enjoyed about because um, because you know until Chris, until you and I were friends, I, I Umphreys weren't on my radar, you know, as an artist. Um, and so going to the shows from the perspective of being there to hang out with you and see what you're doing, um, it's really interesting to study the fan dynamic. And it's sort of like you know, I love this idea that you know, I. I 
I very rarely these days will go see a concert as as a fan, but I I do try to do it a couple times a year. And you know the idea of hey man, I just paid for this ticket, I'm really excited for them to come out, and there's just an anticipation when the house lights go down. Like that's such a um, a precious thing, and it sort of cuts to the heart of like why are we doing this job? And I try to be really it's it that's that's sacred to me. I try to be very careful of that. So I love watching when the Umphreys fans come into the venue and a lot of them know you and they go, Hey Chris. And you know, they set up and they're just, they're, they're so excited and they're so, um, you know, invested in, in what's about to come out on that stage. And I think it's, it's a really cool thing that we can just be, you know, kind of the uh, protector of that for the audience, you know, it's a very good way to put that. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your <laughs> kind words. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, why I want to be a roller skate rink, GJ. Like, <laughs> I, I'm I'm eating this all up from you guys because I think there's a real future for me. Well, I mean, Kyle, you you did you were with Follow Up Boy. I mean, and they were doing some big stuff when you were mixing them. I mean, so I mean, you, you, I think Keith Clark, you know, our editor in chief, said it was one of the loudest shows he's ever been to, and not because of the way you were mixing it, just because the fans were so crazy. I mean, what was that like, man? Being at the you know being in the cockpit for that? It was weird, dude. Um, it and and it's like these chapters that have opened and closed, you know. So I don't even look at it back as me anymore. It was this other kid that was mixing. So it's just a story that gets told, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like Chris said, it's, it's a dynamic that you'd never get used to. Like that shocking Mm -hmm. moment when something goes wrong or that shocking moment when something goes extremely right, like, and, and challenging yourself. I I definitely want to say this, Chris, like when I watch you mix, um, you and Bruce Ryder are the most Zen front of house guys I've ever seen. Like, I never want to see either of you mad because you're both (laughs) kind of scary. I'm just saying, because, but you guys are so Zen and so happy to be doing your job. And like some of the friendliest people, though, like people walk up and ask you questions all day, dude. And I saw you handle so many different people. And, and that's so commendable in this business. Um, I, I commend you for that because you are one of the most Zen front of house guys I've ever seen in my life. Oh, thank you. Um, I spent a lot of time working for the guys in the Grateful Dead and dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) No way, dude. Dude. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's, that's such kind of a trap too, in a way it's a tricky thing to manage because you got to be careful. You know, if you're too friendly with that one dude, he's going to keep coming back all night and you know, that he wants to hang out with you. <laughs> like, dude, I oh, yeah. the show. But, um, so, but I don't want to be rude. And I, what I don't want them to do is leave the event saying, man, I went to go talk to their sound guy and he was a jerk. I mean, so to me, you know, um, that's always a tricky dynamic and it has to do a lot with, I think how much alcohol is being served at the show in question. But you know, that's something that, um, that can be really tough to manage. And so like, I'll echo what, what Kyle said. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, you seem to deal with that very well, much better than a lot of people I've seen try to deal with that situation. Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, I blame part of it on the time I spent in the Navy. Um, the, the Navy did a really good job of instilling in me, uh, you know, keep your shit together and, you know, focus on the, the, the end goal. I can say together on this, right? Um, <laughs> we haven't started witness protection yet so we're good <laughs> good but well, willa good. our previous guest she, uh, she was the first person to drop the f-bomb on the show so we'll let you get away with it man <laughs> see you next tuesday um <laughs> <geez>. yes <laughs> i love where this is going 
So yeah, integrity. It's uh, there you go. <laughs> but you know what's interesting though, being with with the band that you're with. I mean, it's very rare that the the fans from the band. A lot of bands they have no idea who's at front of house you know, behind the console. But I mean, the Unfreeze fans, they know you do, they know you and they recognize you and they come and say hi to you. So, I mean, that's kind of a unique situation, right? Uh, it is. Uh, it was set up by the previous front of house engineer, uh, Kevin Browning, who's now in management. Um, he did the first 12 years and I, I picked up after that. Um, he did a really good job of establishing a, a family atmosphere at front of house. And Unfreeze has fans that have been coming for, you know, 10, 20 years sometimes. Uh, it's one of those bands that, you know, people come back over and over again and they almost always walk by front of house when they're coming in and out. So, you know, a, a little bit of pleasantry and, you know, getting a, a handshake out there and a smile here and there goes a long way in setting up relationships with people that you'll see for years. Um, I've got people that I met on the, the first Umpreece tour, you know, in 2011 that I still see three or four times a year. And, you know, I've seen their kids grow up. I remember that time they you know, had parole and all these things. And we, we just were a family. Um, it's really nice when things work out like that. I wish everybody could have it the same way. Um, but you know, some gigs are just tour to tour. Um, some are show to show. You, know, you only see the guys on the weekends, but mm-hmm. um, I found that, you know, if, if you fall back on, this is me connecting that person with this person emotionally so they can make an exchange of entropy. I mean, ent- no, not entropy. <laughs> but also, but also entropy. <laughs> but also entropy. <laughs> Empathy and entropy. Wow. That's two sides. There's a new thing. article for you there. You got to go think about that for a while. I do have time. Um, <laughs> the empathy between you know the, the artist and the fan, um, if if that just stays, you know, in my uh, modus operandi, then staying zen, you know, it just kind of works out because um, you have to stay zen or you, you, you can't get the flow going. Um, there's some cheese stuff in there as well. Yeah, you go. Um, you got to stay relaxed. For I, sure, man. I stalk you on Facebook and um, I was stalking you when you were in the height of <laughs> uh, your mountain biking. And I thought that was super cool because you started doing the the GoPro videos and everything. Dude, that looks super fun. <laughs> you know, you got to have lots of hobbies. Um, my, my next hobby is uh, rebuilding a vintage motorcycle. Very cool. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you know it was so funny because one of the uh, one of the companies I work with, the uh, they're all engineers, but you know uh, after hours they love to play music, and they had just in the back room of the office just a heap of like old analog stuff. Just and they were like, just throw it out. It's all you know. It was one of those things that you could put it on eBay and get four dollars for it, but then you got to ship it. And so they said, yeah, right. just hey Mike, just take this all back and throw it in the dumpster. And I sent you a picture of it. I said, you want any of this? And you were like, yeah, I'll take it. So I sent you just a big box of just old crap. Happy stuff. So you know, I it love that awesome. the whole like you're like yeah, I'll use the power supplies and and that's you know that's uh, I wish uh, I wish more of us had time to do stuff like that, man. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've already gutted the two effects processors, and, uh, <laughs> all the cases and the power supplies, and then the little uh, MXREQ. I think I figured out a way to shoehorn that into one of these consoles so I can have it as an insert. Well, there you go. See, I think uh, I think there might be another batch coming your way then pretty soon. We'll see what I can do for you, man. <laughs> that would be awesome. 
Well, Chris, thank you for hanging out with us, man. It's uh, it, as always, it's a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, it's really cool to hear what you're up to lately. And uh, you know, I think uh, definitely encourage our listeners to keep an eye on the Yumfries website because I've I've been to two or three of of the shows at this point, and I got to tell you, I really uh, I really enjoy them, and it's a great uh, it's a great night out and uh, some great music, some great musicians, and of course, a really great mix. So uh, I encourage I everyone to, to check that out. And uh, yeah, thanks, man. It was really it was a lot of fun talking to you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, to throw this out there, during this downtime when we're not working, um, we're doing video on demand of Umphrey shows. So if you're bored. Oh, cool. That's and, fun. Uh, go to com and throw up a show. Expect the unexpected. I was blown away by Umphrey's. Like, um, I didn't even listen to anything before I went out to see Chris. I think it was at summer camp a couple of years yep. ago. Yep. And, dude, I was blown away. These guys were insane the light show was insane the sound was insane the songs that they picked just because the mood outside was insane like it, it was so it was like put together but it wasn't put together at all it was it was great and i had a blast man i awesome, left a changed person um definitely <laughs> definitely like i'm into heavy music i'm into like I was in metal and punk rock bands when I was a kid, the whole nine yards, but he likes people kicking I, stuff over and getting punched in the face. That's where Kyle's at. Well, here's the, here's the deal. Umphreys was kicking shit over that night. And it was, <laughs> it was amazing. It was really good. That's awesome, man. Oh, thanks. Thanks again, Chris. It was a blast, man. My pleasure, guys.